0: Anybody know what a flesh pot is? <laughs> Hands, anybody? You actually, I keep trying this. I keep trying to get you to talk at me, and you just, I mean, I know you guys. You don't like to talk in church. Anybody want to anybody wanna venture a guess? What's a flesh pot? Unmute yourselves and shout at me. I've been asking people all week, actually, I mean, don't feel so bad, because our organ scholar, Katie Burke, asked at around the proofing table, we were proofing at Wednesday staff meeting, and she said, what's a flesh spot? And those of us who have seminary degrees kind of looked at each other askance, like, oh, shoot, I think we should know this one. Um, I said, doesn't it have something to do with, like, sex and drugs and rock and roll and, like, debauchery and things like that? So Katie, of course, pulled it up on her phone, because you can look these things up right now, uh, and told us what it, what it meant. Uh, and it's actually kind of an interesting word. Katie was referring to this reading from Exodus that we just heard, these lines actually from the from the King James Bible. The word is from the King James Bible. It's come kind of indelibly down through the centuries. It's shaped the English language. We actually have William Tyndale to thank for this word. He made it up. Uh, the people of Israel say to Moses in, in the book of Exodus, if only we had died by the hand of God in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and had our fill. And actually, the word means exactly what it says. A flesh pot or a meat pot is literally what the Hebrew word means there. We think it's like a a big kettle that you would boil meat in. It's a a meat pot, kind of like an ancient, I think of it like an ancient Egyptian fondue party, I think is kind of (laughs) what flesh pot means. Um, So it's come to mean kind of a place of debauchery. We have 18th and 19th century English writers like Lawrence Stern to thank for that, who plucked this memorable word that William Tyndale just meant to literally refer to a kettle you boil meat in and applied it to all kinds of different places where various kinds of adult activities take place. The flesh pots of Egypt quickly got translated into the flesh pots of Piccadilly Circus or Times Square or the flesh pots of Las Vegas, right? Anything fun and forbidden, that's what the word flesh pot has come to signify in English. But the irony of this Exodus story, of course, is that we know, the reader knows, that Egypt was no place of debauchery for the Hebrew people. Right? There were no fondue parties for the children of Israel. Exodus is very clear. They were enslaved. They mostly served as, as cheap labor for the pharaoh's various building projects. But the Exodus writer knows something really important, which is that when we're, when we're caught in this in-between space, caught between two worlds, that, that liminal space between captivity on the one hand and the promise of freedom in that place of wandering and searching, the world we left behind starts to look pretty dang good in the rear view mirror. You know this, don't you? So they're longing for the flesh pots, just as maybe there are some of us who long for the, the world we left behind, the world that used to be that pre-COVID time before there were riots in our streets, before America got so polarized, before there were mask mandates and Zoom seminars, the before times, right? I was, I was pretty angry this week, to be perfectly honest with you. I was pretty mad when news came down that we were gonna have to start masking up again with COVID cases back on the rise. Uh, All of this unvaccinated activity, the Delta variant, and a lot of my anger, true confession, centered on those of my fellow citizens who have refused to avail themselves of sensible science and get the dang shot. If that's you and you're listening, please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. So I was mad, and I did not have a box of unvaccinated people sitting at the top of my closet for me to yell at. I had a box of masks that I had shoved back there, hoping that I would never see them again. Um, But I dug them out, and there they were. And here we are, masking up and doing the right thing, doing our best to keep one another safe, taking another turn back into the wilderness, just as we thought that maybe it was finally time to enter the Promised Land. So I get this hangry irritated complainy whiny voice of the children of israel in this reading from exodus that was my voice this week if only we had died back in egypt where there were flesh pots of food and nobody ever had to mask up ever they've been wandering in the wilderness for a pretty Long stretch, the promised land keeps retreating back over the horizon, they they catch these glimpses of a paradise that awaits them, and then they find themselves right back in the starvation lands and the isolation and the loneliness and the frustration of, of managing one another's anxiety and trauma, right? Like they're getting jumpy, they're starting to turn on one another, does that look anything like your email inbox this week? Looks suspiciously like mine. So this Exodus story, right? The story of a people's emancipation from slavery and their 40-year-long wilderness sojourn in the desert before they finally arrive in the land of promise. Exodus breaks down really neatly into three zones, right? There's Egypt, then there's the wilderness, and then there's the promised land, right? Egypt, with its flesh pots, stands both for the, the threat and the lure of captivity, the place where we were trapped but maybe we didn't really know how bad it was until we got out of there. Maybe you have had an Egypt in your life, a place that you didn't know how trapped you were until you left it behind. For others of us, I suspect actually Egypt was not that bad. I mean, not everybody, I assume, was working miserably for Pharaoh. I imagine some of the Hebrew people served in other ways, right? They were still enslaved, but maybe a little more privileged. Maybe they had a little more respect than their fellow, you know, Citizens who were working the brick yards in the hot sun. I'm assuming that they're the ones who are complaining now about missing the flesh pots. Because maybe, you know, like they used to hang out at those parties, and every once in a while the pharaoh would throw a little morsel of fondue their way. And they miss the little privileges that they enjoyed at the expense of their fellow enslaved ones. The Egypt of the before times, before those years of reckoning, those wandering through the depths of pandemic. I mean, the Egypt that came before all of this happened for us, that Egypt was pretty good for a lot of us. I mean, don't get me wrong, like Egypt was pretty dang good for me. My grandmother used to say, right, if you're free, white, and 21 in America, life is pretty good. I'm almost 40, but the the point is the same. Egypt was good for me. I was beholden to no man. I had a good job, a good marriage, and a house with a white picket fence around it. The American dream was mine for the plucking, as it was for many of us. Egypt served us really well. And then something shifted, seemingly overnight, although I suspect that when we look back, like all the signs were there, right? Maybe our cultural exodus from Egypt was less a sudden event and more a series of slow but inexorable changes. And now we find ourselves in this this wilderness zone, like the children of Israel in Exodus, wandering in this liminal space between the old way of Egypt that was and the promised land of home. That awaits us the story of exodus splits the story into these three zones egypt the wilderness and the promised land most of exodus takes place in the wilderness that's the place of learning that's the place of discovery it's a place of struggle anthropologists talk about that liminal space as a space of humility and seclusion and ambiguity and testing And nothing about the wilderness is permanent. That's the important thing about the wilderness. None of it is normal. It's meant, actually. It's meant to feel weird. It's supposed to be frustrating. You're you're meant to be hungry in the wilderness. In the wilderness you learn how to wean yourself off of the taste of the flesh pots, the food of injustice that might have served you and your family pretty well, but meant captivity and violence for lots of other people. You lose your taste for the flesh pots and you learn how to retrain your taste buds for the food that will actually satisfy you, the bread of life that Jesus talks about, the bread of justice. And to get there, You start eating this new, weird food. In the Exodus story, it's manna or mana. Literally, the word means, what is it? That's what the children of Israel say, what is it? That's where we get the word manna from. But manna was never designed to be like a permanent new recipe in the Israelite cookbook, right? They're not going to pass this one on for generations. Manna is for the moment. It's wilderness food. It shows up totally by grace. It's their first thing in the morning. You eat your fill while it's fresh. But if you try to save it up for another day, it rots. It's temporary. It's just enough to sustain you into the next day. It's food for the journey in the literal sense, a reminder that whatever territory you're passing through, none of it is designed to last. So don't get too comfortable here, right? We got a ways to go. There's Egypt. There's this wilderness. And then there's the promised land. And throughout Exodus, Moses has to keep reminding the people, the promised land is where we're headed, you guys it's still there. That's where we're going. Because the people keep losing sight of it, right? They lose their longing for it. And I think that's the most dangerous thing about the wilderness, which is that you start to adjust to it, and the wilderness starts to feel like normal. And as soon as the wilderness becomes normal, we run the risk of losing our longing for what could be better. When hope is dampened, we lose our sense of direction and our sense of purpose. It's actually really good to be unsatisfied. It's good to be hungry, actually, just hungry enough to stay focused on the path that lies ahead of you. So we're getting ready to do this meal up here, right? We call it Eucharist, Holy Communion, right? It's the bread of life. It's this ritual that we enact Sunday after Sunday around these table. We're going to give you these little wafers of bread. That's somebody's idea of bread. To me, it's always felt a little bit more like a cardboard cracker, to be perfectly honest. But we'll leave. That's a sermon for another time. The bread and wine ritual of Christianity, though, actually has always been imagined as a kind of manna. This is wilderness food, right? It's not the sumptuous banquet of fondue and flesh pots in Egypt. Which is why I think the church has held on to this really important ritual centuries after we lost our sense of what it really means to be wilderness wanderers, right? Decades after we built these gigantic cathedrals to house it and dressed up this, I mean, frantic desert ritual with all of this fancy cloth of gold and stuff like that. The idea behind this whole thing that we do up there with bread and wine is that this is just enough food to get you through to the next step. It's just a taste of the promised land. It's a kind of, it's like a, it's a theme Theological amuse-bouche, if you like, right? It's designed to whet your appetite, and it is meant to keep you hungry. This food is not meant to satisfy you. You're supposed to want more. This liminal space that we're in, this in-between time, this is actually the space that ritual comes from. There's a bunch of anthropologists who've done some work on this. Victor Turner is the famous one. He spent years in Zambia and Uganda studying tribal rites of passage, he and his wife Edith built on the work of earlier anthropologists to crack this theory about how rituals work. And Eucharist, baptism, church is a kind of a ritual, right? Um, There's also cultural rituals. We might think of sort of the the rite of passage we're going through right now as a society, the end of one era, and then that weird transition time when everything's kind of up for grabs before the new political and social life reveals itself. In liminal, in the the liminal space, the liminality, the in-between, of a rite of passage ritual, there's a way in, right? That usually involves some form of of death. It's some kind of uh, ritual separation. It's like parting the Red Sea in the wilderness and walking through and leaving Egypt behind. And baptism actually picks up on a lot of that imagery. Baptism, you know, anciently was associated with the Red Sea story, right? The the parting of the waters, the, the adult or the child in this case, goes down into the water, and it's the water of the Red Sea. It's the water of separation. It's the water, of abandonment. It's the water of of death. And the idea is the only way out of that moment of disassembly, the only way out is through it. Because on the other side, there's this promise. There's this, this newness, holiness, reincorporation into a community. This child comes out of the baptismal font, wet and squirming, and we anoint his head with oil. We hand his parents on his behalf, we hand them a candle And then we say a prayer, all of us who have come through the waters, we say, we receive you into the household of God, confess the faith of Christ crucified, proclaim his resurrection, and share with us in his eternal priesthood. That's super intense church language, right? We don't talk that way in normal life. We're not meant to. That's the language of a ritual. It's not literal language. It's ritual language, because what we're talking about is life and death. We're talking about a ritual, a, a rite of passage. And these little guys who are being baptized today are going to engage probably their first communal rite of passage, but almost certainly not their last, right? They're going to go through graduation They're gonna get a license probably. They'll drive a car for the first time. They'll have sex for the first time. They'll meet a partner, maybe multiple partners. They'll fall in love and out of love and then fall in love again. They'll be the creation of new families. There's a death to old ways. There's shedding of old skins, the taking on of new skins. I mean, you all know this, you've lived this. Life is full of weird swerves and beginnings and endings that feel like death. And we know that ending is actually a new beginning. And we keep going through those cycles of change, right? Dante and Benedict are in for a lifelong journey of cycles of change. That's what it means to be human. In this context, we say, that's actually what it means to be baptized, right? As if we say, look, there is no way to avoid what life does. There's no way to avoid change. There's no way to avoid death. It comes in a million tiny ways. So rather than hiding from that, rather than distancing from that or pretending it's not there, we baptize you and invite you into this journey of discovery to learn how to embrace that way of dying and being reborn. Being a Christian is not about perfecting your moral behavior. It's about learning how to be an active participant in your own life, not just letting stuff happen to you, but turning your back on Egypt and making your peace with the wilderness, this place of sojourn in between birth and death. And where their lives are going to take these beautiful boys, I have no idea. But their journey through change and new birth starts here, with this primary ritual of death and rebirth, by which they become part of this new and bigger thing. The people who proclaim in the loudest voice, we know that the flesh pots of Egypt are not for us. There is no life back there. Although those flesh pots were kind of great when we think back on them. But they're not where we're called to stay. There's only that promised land that beckons us forward, and there is this manna for us, this temporary wilderness food, this little taste of bread. That's what gets us through enough to make it through to the next day. Our God provides bread enough for the journey, and we learn, actually, when we're in the wilderness, which is where we live most of our lives, we learn how to trust God as we embrace the life that freedom is holding out for us. We're gonna sing it in just a little moment. Get into that water. Get into the water, have no fear. Take the manna because it's here for you. And so we sing, you that yearn for days of fullness. All around us is our food. Taste and see the grace eternal. Taste and see that God is good.